Gospel, and uh, so I wanted to share some thoughts with that passage with you this morning. So, uh, John 3, and we'll read together from the first verse. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council, and he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, We know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could do or no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old, Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases, You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. Uh, You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things. I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. So there was a, an Anglican, a Church of England bishop uh, in a bygone century who was fairly famous called J.C. Ryle. And in his little book on the Gospels, he, he says this. He says, a man may be ignorant of many things in religion and yet be saved. But to be ignorant of the matters that are handled in this chapter is to be on the broad road. So in other words, you can afford to get many things wrong in life without it spelling complete disaster. So you can fail your exams and still succeed in life, still get a decent job and make a decent uh, living and still uh, have a happy life even though you fail all of your exams. Uh, you can even pick the wrong job and still get through. It may not necessarily spell disaster. But if you fail to get the matter of how you get into heaven right, then the consequences will not only be serious, but they will be eternal. And that's why J.C. Ryle felt that this was one of the key texts 
one of the key passages in the New Testament. Its importance for John, uh, the evangelist, the writer of this fourth gospel, the importance of this topic uh, can be seen in a number of ways. First of all, um, John, who wrote the fourth gospel, so you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then you've got John, four gospels. fourth one is written by John, and he wrote it probably towards the end of the first century. Uh, most uh, New Testament scholars think that he wrote it towards the end of the New Testament, so or, or the end of the first century. So he's writing respect, uh, respectively. He's writing in reflection. He's thinking back to what he observed. And there's already three gospels in circulation by the time that he gets to write his gospel. And uh, one of the things that's that's absolutely clear about John's gospel is that. It is a much more theological gospel than the others. So let us just tell the story in, in a sense. But John's gospel is a theological gospel. I don't want to uh, bore you to tears with information on that. But one of the ways in which you can see that is that he builds his gospel around seven miracles that Jesus performs. And the whole gospel hangs on those seven miracles. And it's really built around them. And uh, he explains the significance of those miracles and as he un unfolds or unpacks the story of Jesus. I mean, another way that you can see that John's Gospel is theological is as soon as you open John's Gospel, it's clear that it's going to be different from the others. So the other Gospels tell you about the, the birth of Jesus and so on. But John's Gospel begins like this. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then, of course, he goes on, on to tell us in verse 14 that the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. So uh, this spoken uh, Word of God, this creative power of God, when God speaks, stuff happens. And so this power of God, this revelation of God becomes flesh and dwells amongst us. And we know, of course, that that's a reference to Jesus. But the point I want to make is this, and I'm sorry I'm taking so long to get to it. story of my life, it takes me forever to get to the point. But the point I'm trying to make is, if John's Gospel is a theological Gospel, which it is, isn't it interesting that the first topic that he has Jesus deal with is the topic of the new birth? It is absolutely foundational. It is, intrin it is intrinsic. It's it, to the gospel, it, it's it, it's core to the gospel, and that's why John has Jesus deal before he deals with anything else. That's why Jesus, John has Jesus deal um, with the new birth. The other reason that this topic is so important is that um, you know these are not the words of of uh, Robert Murdoch or any of the other people that come and preach here or any of the other high-flying preachers in Scotland, some of their names you might recognize. These are words that did not fall from their lips. Originally, these are words that fell from the lips of Jesus. It was Jesus, and none other than Jesus, who said, first, that you must be born again. And therefore, because it is of such importance to John and because it's of such importance to Jesus, isn't it absolutely essential that we understand what is meant by this little statement, you must be born again. 
Now, uh, the context of this passage is really fairly straightforward. Jesus is in Jerusalem to commemorate what they call the Passover feast, which was a feast that marked the coming of the children of Israel out of Egypt. So this Passover feast, um, they're in, Jesus is in Jerusalem to commemorate that feast. He visited Jerusalem three times to commemorate that feast during the course of his ministry. And John records three visits to Jerusalem for the Passover. So he's in Jerusalem. He's been performing all kinds of miracles on the streets of Jerusalem. He is... Uh, He's been in the temple courts teaching and preaching and uh, people have been flocking to him. At the end of chapter 2 you can pick this up in huge numbers. Um, and many people came to believe on him. And uh, you've got the cleansing of the temple where he turned over the money changers and drove out those who were exploiting the poor, drove them out of the temple and so on. Um, but huge numbers of people came to listen to him and we're told at the end of chapter 2 that many people believed on him. But then we're told he didn't believe them or believe in them. They believed in him, but he didn't believe in them because he knew their hearts and he knew that they weren't genuine. He knew that they were only interested in being entertained with miracles. They weren't really interested in what he had to offer or what he had to give. Now it's one of these people then chapter 3, who came to meet with Jesus. And that's where we really break into the story. Now, uh, we know that he came late at night. This character called Nicodemus, he wants to talk to this miracle worker from Galilee. He wants to find out a little bit more about this miracle worker from Galilee. And so he comes late at night to talk to Jesus, this man called Nicodemus. Now, I don't know why he came late at night. That's the truth. I don't think any of us can be dramatic about why he came late at night. Maybe Jesus was difficult to get close to during the day because there were so many people around him. Maybe he was just uh, following in the tradition of the rabbis, Jewish teachers, who met late at night to discuss the, the, the most recent theological conundrum. Maybe that's why he came to Jesus late at night. Maybe this is what Jewish teachers did. Maybe they just met up for coffee late at night and uh, discussed uh, theology together. I had a sneaking suspicion that he came late at night because he wanted to keep his visit to Jesus fairly quiet. I had a sneaking suspicion that he was a little bit embarrassed about the fact that he was interested in what Jesus was teaching. Interested in finding out more about Jesus. He was intrigued with this character, this teacher, this miracle worker from Galilee in the north. And he wants to discover, but he knows a little bit more about Jesus, but he knows that his Pharisaic friends despise him for going to talk to somebody as backwater as Jesus. So he wants to keep it quiet. But here's what I want to say by way of encouragement. Um, at least he came. It's interesting when he did come, he kind of... He couches his words in a way that's a little unusual. We have heard you said. We have heard that you're a teacher. We have heard about the things that you've done. It's all we, we, we. Is he trying to hide behind numbers? Is he embarrassed about the fact that he had come and that he wanted to find out more about Jesus? And I don't, I don't know very many of you here this morning. I don't know if you're a Christian or not. Maybe you're just here because you want to find out a little bit more about Jesus. And I want to encourage you to, 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 to continue on with your search. Because it is the most important search that you will ever engage in. Ever. 
It is the most important topic. Jesus is the most important person. And I hope that you'll continue with your search like Nicodemus, despite what his friends thought, down at the local club. He didn't care what they thought. He came to talk to Jesus and find out more about Jesus himself. Well, I've got three things that I'm going to try and pull out of this little passage for you. Um, there's a declaration that Jesus makes. There is um, an illustration which Jesus uh, uses of the wind to explain the work of the Spirit. And then finally, there is an explanation as to how someone can actually um, make this real for themselves. So those are the three things. They're very simple. A declaration, there is um, an illustration, and then finally there is an explanation. Now, I want to look at the declaration first that Jesus makes. You must be born again. And please don't panic if this first point seems fairly long or longer than... If, at the end of the first point, you say to yourself, if this guy takes as long as the last two points, we'll be here till supper time. The last two points will be a lot shorter, so don't panic about that. So, I want to look at this declaration that Jesus made. It's interesting that Nicodemus comes to Jesus... I'm sure he had lots of questions that he wanted to ask Jesus. But when he came to Jesus, John tells us that he didn't give, Jesus didn't give Nicodemus the opportunity to ask any questions. Jesus took control of the conversation. And it was Jesus that confronted him with this statement, Nicodemus, you must be born again. So Sometimes that's the way it is with God, isn't it? He takes control and brings us uh, to, to think about things that we wouldn't normally think about. Sometimes he brings things into our lives to shape our lives to its very core so that we'll start to think about things that we need to think about. And Jesus does that here with Nicodemus. He doesn't wait for Nicodemus to ask the questions. Jesus makes this great declaration. Now, three things very quickly about this declaration. Um, I want you to notice uh, what he said Nicodemus needed. I want you to notice what is needed, I want you to notice why it is needed, and I want you to notice who needs it. So those are the three things. So, what is needed, who needs it, and why it's needed. So first of all, what is needed? Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. Sometimes that's translated, you must be born from above. And it carries this idea of a person who is spiritually dead, in the sense that they are unresponsive, they are disinterested. And you don't need to go far to meet people and you talk to them about the gospel and you talk to them about spiritual things. They are spiritually dead, they are completely disinterested, they have no interest whatsoever. And the only thing that will change them is for the Holy Spirit to come upon them and infuse new life, spiritual life in them, to awaken them, to somehow cause them to think about things that they wouldn't normally think about. And that's what it means to be born again, or to be born above. It is to experience this regenerating work that we talk about in, in places where I hang out in Bible colleges. This regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. That's what's needed in a person to bring them to faith in, in Christ. And that's what Jesus says to Nicodemus. He says, you must be born again. Now, didn't Nicodemus says to Jesus, so how can that be? How can, how can someone be born again? Do they have to go back inside their mother's womb and then sort of 
re-emerge and come back out into the world. Now, he's a grown man. He knows that it's impossible for people to go back into their mother's womb. There's a difference between not believing and not wanting to believe. And Nicodemus might be getting close to the group that doesn't want to believe. Anyway, he's plying Jesus with all kinds of questions. And then in verse 5, Jesus goes on and he explains it a little bit further. He says, so you need to be born of water and of the Spirit. You need to be born of both of those things. You need to be born of water and of the Spirit. That little statement, born of water and of the Spirit, is an interesting statement, isn't it? What does it mean? And uh, a lot of ink has been spilled over what that means. Some people think it refers to natural birth. So the child is surrounded by amniotic fluid in the womb and that water breaks and is released before the child is born. And some people think that the water which has been spoken of here is a natural birth. So you've got to be born physically and then you've got to be born spiritually. The only difficulty with that (coughs) interpretation is that This would be the only place in the Bible where water is used to depict natural birth, which would be unusual. And Jesus seems to imply, you're a teacher of Israel and you don't understand this. Jesus seems to imply, because of this man's knowledge of the Old Testament, he should understand what what Jesus is talking about when he says you need to be born of water and of the Spirit. So I don't think it means natural birth. You'll have to forgive me if you disagree with me. Students disagree with me all the time, I still sleep at night, so don't you worry if you disagree with me. The other thing that he, uh, the other suggestion that sometimes used is that this is a reference to baptism. Um, so, so unless you are baptized, uh, born of water, unless and born of the spirit, unless you are born again spiritually, um, you're not going to see the kingdom of heaven. But I mean, really, are we going to argue that baptism is absolutely necessary for salvation? Where does that leave the thief on the cross? Who could be baptized? And when that Philippian jailer in Acts 16 ran into Paul's cell and said, Sir, what must I do to be saved? What did Paul say to him? He said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So there's no way that that statement can contradict John 3. I don't think that this is a reference to baptism. It cannot be. Surely Jesus isn't saying the only way a person can be saved, the only way a person can be part of God's kingdom is if they are born, or again in the sense that they are baptized. I don't think that's the best explanation. So what I think is the best explanation is, is that Jesus is picking up on Old Testament imagery to explain the new birth to Nicodemus. And water is used as a symbol, it's used to signify in John's Gospel spiritual life, like in the very next chapter, chapter 4. This broken lady who has had five husbands and now has a live-in lover, whose life has been full of disappointment and heartache, one after another. And Jesus sits down beside her at a well and sits on the wall and begins to talk to her. Probably for the first time ever, she met someone who really cared deeply about her. And what did Jesus say to her? He says, I can give you water, and if you drink the water that I give to you, you will never thirst again. 
Because whatever I give to you will well up within you into a fountain of eternal spiritual life. And in that passage, water is symbolic of spiritual life. And I think exactly the same is true here in John chapter 3. I think Jesus is saying the same thing. So Ezekiel, way back in the Old Testament, listen to what he says. Ezekiel 36, speaking to idolatrous Israel. Who are pursuing idol worship rather than the God worshipping the God that brought them out of Egypt. Worshipping idols. This is what Ezekiel says, speaking on God's behalf, saying, The day is coming when I'm going to do a new thing in your heart and you'll stop worshipping idols. And this is what Ezekiel says I'll sprinkle you with clean water and you will be clean. I'll cleanse you from all your impurities and from all of your idols. I'll give you a new heart and I'll put my spirit in you and I'll remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. So water and spirit are synonymous with each other. They refer to the same thing. And what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is, you need to be born spiritually. You need new spiritual life. You need the life that will well up in you into everlasting life. That's what you need, Nicodemus. And without that, you will never even see the kingdom of heaven. You won't be part of the kingdom of heaven. You'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. It will never be something that will be real to you. You'll be outside forever unless you experience this new birth. Now, we say a lot more about that, but... but what I'm trying to establish is that there needs to be a time when you are born again, whoever you are, whatever church background you come from, um, whatever your story is, and we all have different stories, your story is uh, different from mine, um, but whatever our story is, we need to be born again. I don't think that that necessarily always has to be identical in the way it works itself out in our lives. I can go back to a night when I was sitting in a field listening to a speaker preach, and he preached on an empty life and a full life. And he asked, what are you, what are you gonna, what do you, what do you want? An empty life, we're searching for all the right thing in all the wrong places, or a full life, knowing the God that you were created to know. What do you want, he said. And he said, Jesus is the only way to a full life. And I got down by the side of a bale of straw and asked Jesus to be my Savior. And my heart was changed and my life was changed and that was the beginning of a new uh, that was a new beginning in my journey with, with God. No, I have a friend who's in ministry and he said to me, we were interviewing him actually for church membership and he said to me Say, I, I can't remember the night that I was born again, all I know is this that at the beginning of the summer I didn't believe in Jesus I didn't believe in God, but at the end of the summer I did believe, and I was trusting in Christ alone for salvation. And somewhere over the course of that summer, God did something in my heart to completely change it. So I don't, I don't say your experience has to be the same as mine, but I am saying to you, you need to be sure that you're born again. You need to be sure that you're born again. You need to be sure that new spiritual life flows in you and through you. In your, in your thing. So that's what's needed. That's what's needed. Who needed it? That's really interesting. Who needed this? Nicodemus uh, is the person that Jesus is talking to. Nicodemus is the man that he is telling, needs to be, telling him he needs to be born again. So think about Nicodemus. He's, he's, he's religious. Deeply, deeply religious. He's a Pharisee. We know who, who are the Pharisees. So in the Old Testament, the Jews 
were carried off in captivity to a place called Babylon. It was a judgment of God because they were worshipping idols and they had forgotten about the God that brought them out of Egypt. And uh, in the aftermath of that, when they eventually came back and resettled in Jerusalem, there was a group that formed themselves in, into uh, an organization called the Pharisees. And they were committed to keeping Israel pure. We must never be guilty of idolatry again. We must be absolutely committed to the law. And so they, they studied the law, they applied the law. Some of them were hypocrites and some of them had externalized religion. But not all of them. Some of them were really sincere. And uh, Nicodemus belongs to this group who are passionate about God's law. Let's keep God's law. Let's not do anything that offends God in case God's judgment falls on us again and we're carried off into captivity. That's who the Pharisees were. And he's one of them. This man is fastidiously righteous. He attends the temple every Sabbath. He is there every week without fail. He is not only does he attend the temple and the holy uh, gatherings that take place on the Sabbath in the temple, not only does he do that every single week, but he teaches the Bible, he teaches the Old Testament. He reveres not just every word in the Old Testament, every letter in the Old Testament. He reveres it. Yes, it's like a religious person. So if you saw a group of people, and, and some of us have just seen a whole group of people walk up the street and wondered where they have come from. But if you saw a group of people, um, in that group you would see Nicodemus. He'd have a cloak on, he'd have a head garment on, he'd have a little box tied to his head. Inside the box was the law of God written. You say, there's the holy man amongst that group. This guy looks religious. He acts religious. He behaves religious. Jesus says to him, Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you're not going to be part of the kingdom of heaven. The implications of this in the 21st century are serious. You can come to church every Sunday. Come to church every Sunday. You can even be a Sunday school teacher. No, no. You could be a preacher and still not be born again. You need to be born again, Nicodemus. This is a start message. Finally, why do we need it? We, we need it because without it we won't be part of the kingdom of heaven. Now, we could spend forever on the kingdom of heaven. And uh, that is of the essence. So let me just very quickly explain the kingdom of God. Because that's the term that John used. What is the kingdom of God? Well, God's kingdom exists wherever God reigns, doesn't it? So there is a sense in which God reigns over the universe uh, and either he is God of all or he's not God at all. But in the Old Testament there are passages that look forward to a coming day when a son of David will reign, his reign will set up a reign and his reign will be eternal. And, that, and his, his reign will be like the kingdom of God. And so wherever Wherever people have surrendered to that king, then his kingdom exists. So his kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ exists in this room. Because people have surrendered to his kingship, to his lordship. They are his citizens, they are his adherents, they embrace him as their king. They're part of this kingdom. And it's not, a, it's not a geographical thing, it's a spiritual thing. Isn't that what Jesus said to Pilate? My kingdom is not of this world. 
It, it belongs to a different world. If it, if, if it was just about geographical territory I could call angels and they'd destroy you and wipe you from the face of the earth and drive you out of Jerusalem. But it's about more than that. And so that's the kingdom. So there's a sense in which the kingdom has already come, but there's a sense in which the kingdom will one day be consummated in the new heaven and the new earth. So what I mean by that is we only get a taste of the kingdom now. Eternity is broken in now. But there's coming a time when the kingdom in all of its fullness will come and will be in God's presence, basking in his presence in glory forever. And, and Nicodemus, I think, is really interested in the kingdom because Jesus talks a lot about it. But Jesus says to Nicodemus, you won't be part of God's kingdom on earth and you won't be part of God's kingdom in eternity. You will never get into heaven, ever, unless you're born again. That's why, that's why Nicodemus needs it. So you see why this is really important? When I was a little boy, I went on a school trip to the Bass Rock. Um, so I, I grew up in Lady. we got a school trip to the Bass Rock. A little man with a big beard had a boat and he took us out. I remember him so well. And he said to us, he said to us, if you're not back at this pier, when, when he let us off at the Bass Rock, he said, if you're not back here at 2 o'clock, I am leaving without you. I, I was only a little boy and that man scared the life out of me and I knew that if I was not back at 2 o'clock I was doomed because there's no way he was coming back for me. So whatever else I had to get right on that school trip I could get a whole bunch of things wrong but the one thing I needed to get right was I needed to be at the pier at 2 o'clock. And that's what John is saying to us in John 3. You can get a whole bunch of things wrong but this is one thing you need to get right. You need to be absolutely sure that you are born again. Now, secondly then, the explanation. Flesh gives birth to flesh and spirit gives birth to flesh. To spirit. So, flesh is just flesh, isn't it? It's just human. It's got normal spiritual life. It takes the spirit, the Holy Spirit, to generate spiritual life. Now, it's a cool evening. Jesus is sitting on the roof of a house talking to Nicodemus. The wind is blowing. It's bending the trees or the tree, the leaves of the trees are shaking. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, by way of explanation, trying to explain the spiritual birth, he says, see the, the, the tree, see, we can't see the wind, but we can hear it. We hear it blowing through the branches of the tree. We can't see it, but we can actually see the, the wind, but we can see the effects of the wind. We can see what the wind does, and, and you know that. You, we watch our television screens and we see those waves lashing against harbour walls, but we can't see the wind that drives it. Or we see the trees bending over and snapping in two, but we can't see the wind that's doing it to them. We can only see the effects of the wind's presence. And exactly the same is true when it comes to the spiritual birth. I can't see the Holy Spirit. I have no idea who the Holy Spirit is speaking to. I don't know in whose heart the Holy Spirit is speaking. I can't see that. You can't see that. I don't know where the Spirit has come from. I don't know where the Spirit is going next. I can see the effects of the Holy Spirit's presence and His regenerating work. And how can I see the, the, the effects of it? I can see the effects of it in a changed life, a transformed life. Life. That's how I can see the effects of it. So, 
when I was a little boy, I, I, I grew up on just further down the East Coast. So we're in the East Coast now, we're in the middle of the country here. So I just grew up a little bit further down the, uh, further down the East Coast. My parents' marriage was a mess. My parents were divorced when I was six. Um, I, I stayed with my father and my mother, I took my sister and went off and had another relationship, another child. And, and, and it was a mess, really, from start to I can still remember the night my mother left home, told me that she wasn't coming back. And I can still remember the pain of that night as a youngster, crying myself into the early hours of the morning, thinking, goodness, how in the world will I survive without a mother? It's horrendous. But when I was about 12, I went with my father to a meeting. And on the way home, I still remember the meeting. I hadn't a clue what the guy was saying. I was a pagan. I'd never been hardly in church before. The only time I'd been to church was when my father and his girlfriend thought it would be a good idea to get rid of me out of home on Sunday. And I went to Sunday school and I caused that much trouble that the Sunday school teacher said, please go and come back, son. <laughs> that was my experience at church. I, I went with my father to the church service when I was about 12 and on the way home, he, said to, he spoke to the minister afterwards, I had no idea what he was speaking about. He said to me, Robert, I've become a Christian. And I can tell you that was that changed my father and our family unbelievably. You've no idea the difference that that made to my father. So I didn't see the spirit at work. I didn't know how the spirit worked. I didn't know where the spirit came from. But somehow through the Bible, God spoke to my father that night and directly changed him. And through this change, the transformation in his life, I became a Christian. So what I'm saying to you is, listen, we can't see the Holy Spirit at work. It's an unseen thing, but we can see the effects of it. And lives are changed. They start to go in a new direction. They've got new... They fall in love with new things. They enjoy being with God's people. They love to hear the Bible explained. They live in a way that pleases God, not offends God. I mean, a billion things change when a person is born again and the Holy Spirit comes to live in their hearts. A billion things change. Maybe not overnight, we don't become perfect overnight, but there is a sweet change that starts to drive us in a new direction, in God's direction. Now, Jesus says to Nicodemus, he says, we, we don't see the wind, but we can see it, we can hear it, we can observe the effects of it. And that's the same with the Holy Spirit. So, finally then, Jesus uses an illustration, and uh, he uses an illustration of, of how a person can be born again. And the illustration is taken from Numbers 21, verses 4 to 9. Remember that story of the brazen serpent? So the children of Israel were slaves in Egypt and crying out to God because the Egyptians were causing them, asking them to throw their baby boys to the crocodiles in the river Nile. They were baking bricks for the Egyptians under the heat of the Mediterranean sun all day long. And they're crying out to God, help us, have mercy on us. And eventually God sends this character called Moses to lead them out of Egypt. And he leads them out of Egypt. But the whole way out of Egypt, they grumble and moan and give off stink about how difficult it is in the wilderness and how they don't have pots of stew like they had back in Egypt and they forgot about the fact that they were throwing their baby boys to the crocodiles they just moaned and grumbled so eventually as a judgment of God and to bring them to their spiritual senses because good fathers are interested in correcting their children aren't they? 
Like a good father doesn't want to see his child just do their own thing. He wants them to, to grow up in a sensible way. So God's a good father. And he wants, to, he wants to correct his children. He wants them to stop grumbling. He wants them to see the foolishness of their ways. So he sends a plague of snakes amongst them. And these snakes bite them, poisonous snakes. Some of them begin to die. They start to cry out. Moses prays for them. And God says to Moses, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll make, make a brazen, a bronze serpent. Raise it up on a pole in the middle of the camp. And when those who are bitten by poisonous snakes look to that serpent and believe through that serpent, God is going to heal them. They will be healed. And Jesus says to this religious leader, he says, so will the Son of Man be lifted up and everyone who believes in him will not perish, will have everlasting life. That's how someone's born again, by looking to Jesus. Just looking to Jesus. And seeing that through what Jesus did on the cross, that, that their disease of sin can be healed, that they can be forgiven, that they can be changed, that they can be set free from the, from the chains that bind them, through what Jesus did on the cross, that God can break into their lives and give them a new beginning, just like my father all those years ago. And, and so I, I just want to ask you the question, if you look to Jesus, if you look to Jesus. You know, it's interesting, this story. Um, we don't really know whether Nicodemus ever looked to Jesus. He only mentioned three times in John's Gospel. Once here, once chapter 7, where he says to his fellow Pharisees, we should give people a fair hearing before we judge them. And once in John 19, when along with Joseph of Arimathea, he took the body of Jesus down from the cross and laid it in the tomb. But we don't really know if he ever fully did look to Christ and believe in Christ and trust in Christ. We don't know. I hope he did. Don't you? Maybe, just maybe, the fact that John tells us a little bit about Nicodemus, maybe, just maybe, that's... There's, there's, a, there's at least a hope that Nicodemus became part of the church that John was uh, writing from. I, the truth is, I don't know. But maybe it's purposeful that we don't know. Because maybe God wants us to wrestle with the question, have I been born again? Have you been born? Have you looked to Jesus? Have you really looked to Jesus? And have you been born again? Yeah, I, I want to tell you this and I, before I sit down, and then I'm going to sit down. I, I, so I've been the minister of two churches, both at the Atlantic. I am now the uh, principal of a Bible college in Edinburgh. I spend my life studying the Bible, preaching the Bible, talking about the Bible. But none of that, and I mean this with all my heart, none of that will mean anything. I stand before God, and God says to me, Right, Murder. What do you think you should get in here? The only thing I will have to offer is Jesus died for my sins. He bore the penalty of my sins. I don't have to die for my sins. I don't have to go to a lost eternity for my sins because Jesus has borne my punishment and I'm trusting that he has done everything that was needed for me to get into heaven and that all of his goodness has been transferred to my spiritual bank account. I've got nothing else to offer except Jesus. Him writer said all those years ago, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. And that is my story. And that is the message of the New Testament. Jesus is all that you need. 
He is all that you need, but you absolutely need Him. Because without Him, you won't be part of heaven, and you won't experience God's kingdom on earth. Thank you so much.